0: Welcome to series three of Deep Pollution from Salvage Wire. In this podcast, we interview interesting and inspiring leaders to discuss issues that are facing the vehicle salvage and vehicle recycling industries, along with other leaders who can challenge and inspire the whole industry. In this episode, we welcome Tom Denton of Automotive Technology. Tom has written a number of automotive textbooks covering subjects like vehicle electronic systems, alternative fuel fault diagnosis technician training ADAS and electric and hybrid vehicles you can find out more about tom at tomdenton.org let's get into our conversation tom thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today and uh, and speak to us as a way of introduction can you tell tell us a bit about yourself your career you know and and what you're doing now
1: uh, okay well first of all it's a pleasure to be here andy thanks for inviting me and hello to everybody um who's listening to the podcast uh, a little bit about myself i mean i'm i'm known for writing textbooks um, but my my general background is um automotive since i was about 6 years old i think pulling dad's scooter apart on mum's kitchen worktop or something, which she was never too pleased about, but it's just kind of in my blood, you know, from from there. I, I did my trade training in the British Army in the REMI and um, a fantastic training and absolutely loved it as as an auto electrician. Um, I left there and I, I was a, a mobile auto electrician for a while. I, that morphed into running a high street garage. Uh, following that, I became a lecturer and then head of automotive at a big college. Um, started an e-learning company, uh, I've been a tutor for the Open University, and I've worked for the IMI, and, and then ended up as a consultant again, which I am kind of now mostly in writing and teaching and doing all sorts of things like that. Still very much connected to the IMI, Institute of the Motor Industry, that is, um, because of you know how much I agree with a lot of what they do. And I've also reached that point in my career where I'm kind of winding it down a little bit, or I'm trying to. But every time I do that, somebody gets in touch uh, and says, "Tom, will you will you do this?" Um, I, I have my own company. I'm a I'm a kind of a one or a two man band, if you like, really. But mostly just myself. Uh, I call myself Automotive Technology because that pretty much describes what I am and what I do.
0: Okay, and for the purposes of any overseas listeners, REME is is what.
1: It's uh, sorry. It's the Royal Electrical and Mechanical Engineers. So it's the um, <clears throat> it's the, the the trade part of the of the army. So we qualified as a, a soldier to start with, and then did the trade training in in um, in the normal way that you would in the college.
0: And and your role was to try and keep the vehicles running. Yeah, I was uh, what's known as an
1: electrician, Remi. Um, and it was what we would think of now as an auto electrician, um, so everything automotive electrical, but we also did high voltage electrics as well. So even way back then, before these newfangled um, electric vehicles came out, you know, we were we were already working on on high voltage systems. So, you know, it's um, it's and I have to say it's something I've, I thoroughly enjoy. I've always
0: liked the, the challenging electrical side of vehicles. Brilliant. Brilliant. Now, um, you mentioned textbooks and you mentioned books. What what sort of books are you writing?
1: Well, uh, as a whole range of them, um, I mean, just about every aspect of the automotive trade as far as the technology, how things work are concerned, um, other than the uh, body and, and paint side, which is a, a separate specialism. I don't touch that. So. Um, So I've got books that range from basic um, mechanical and electrical engineering through to advanced electrical and electronic systems. And diagnostics is a big part of what I do. And more recently, it's been pushing more towards electric vehicles, of course, and more towards ADAS and self-driving and that sort of thing. Um, If I actually do a count of the books, um, um, allowing account for second, third, fourth and even fifth editions on some of them and I've now got my name on well over 40 different textbooks that are published um, (laughs) around the world. They're available all over Um, and you know in the UK mostly is is where I'm known so it's um, it's something that I've been working on for quite a long time. And and are you working on a book now? Uh, Yes I'm almost always working on a book. I think it's the electric sorry the mechanical and electrical systems book which i'm working on at the moment together with a partner i've uh, taken on a, a colleague who's helping me uh, write the books now again part of my gradual handing over process and um that that's the one we're working on at the moment and that will be coming
0: out in november or something in its third edition wow fantastic and what's the motivation about writing those books well i
1: mean i can remember the actual day uh, when i when i started on these i was i was sat in a in a classroom at um, colchester institute which was a big college where i i was a teacher and then i was head of engineering for a while there and i was le- lecturing at the time and 1992 this is so going way way back now and uh, a commissioning editor visited the college and he was from publisher called edward arnold which i don't think even exists anymore i think it's been taken over and morphed into other companies several times uh routledge is the is my main publisher at the moment and anyway he came into the the staff room and said i'm I'm looking for an author to write an electrical textbook for for vehicles There, there there was one about Um, Griffiths I think the the author was that like run out of date several years back and they wanted somebody to write a new one and I've always suffered from from volunteering and saying yes so so before I knew what had happened I got my hand in the in the air you know I said oh yes you know I'd love to have a go at that and um, well the rest as they say is history and you know I got got the contract and I I started on the first edition or Automobile, Electrical and Electronic Systems in 1992. And that one is now in its fifth edition and about five times the size of when it first started, of course. So um, that's a bit of a challenge. But
0: So, yeah, 1992, and I haven't really stopped since then. So you've had a major impact in educating the industry.
1: I I hope I have, Andy. I mean, it's... um, you know, we always, perhaps I'm a little bit humble to say but I mean I, I've spread an awful lot of textbooks around I've, I've tried to make them be accessible so people can learn easily from them and things like that because I, I can remember having textbooks when I was learning and training and things like that and they were really difficult to to get your head around you know they were there were sometimes exercises in showing how clever the author was rather than in in finding ways to, to let the students learn something more easily. So I kind of used my teaching knowledge. I've done sort of teaching qualifications over the years and I tried to use my teaching knowledge to, to build, all the books kind of build from zero knowledge upwards, you know, rather than launching in, in that particular way. So it's, um, it's something that I, I hope I have had an impact on, on people and made the learning easier for them and made life easier for
0: some of the teachers because they've got access to you know useful learning material brilliant brilliant now you mentioned just now you mentioned the institute of the motor industry the IMI yeah what are what are the benefits of being part of the IMI being a member of the IMI
1: yeah this is the uh, what have the IMI ever done for us kind of question isn't it really and it's 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 always a little bit more difficult, but the IMI, for those that don't know, are kind of a representative organisation for those of us that are members of the IMI, um, but they also provide qualifications and set standards and, and things like that as far as the industry is concerned. So it's, um, it's a great organisation to be part of. You get letters after your name, which acknowledges your kind of status within the industry, which is one thing, but more important than that, And and I usually like to use a phrase, um, something along the lines of, well, if you want to feel involved in these sort of organisations, get involved Mm -hmm. in these organisations. And I find it absolutely fascinating, but also really useful to get involved in committees and developing new standards and new syllabuses and new qualifications and different things like that. So... You know, I still learn something new all the time when I go to to meetings, and I know you 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 and I are in meetings where we join up together, Andy. And I you know I learn things from you, and I learn things from other people, and and this concept of like networking, and we're all in the IMI together, and things like that. That's to me, that's what I get out of it. And I mean, you know, you can tick some boxes. You I don't know, you get a discount from here and a discount from there, and a few other useful things like that, but. But well, to me, it's the it's the sharing with like minded people and um, networking that is the real benefit.
0: Brilliant. Brilliant. And obviously, part of part of that whole member, you know, member of the IMI is continual professional development. It's learning, it's growing. Um, and you've been doing that for a long, long time. And you've become an influencer and a leader within the industry. So how important is good management, good leadership within the industry?
1: I think it's absolutely essential. Um, it's becoming more important
0: now. But having said
1: that, I would say it always has been important. Um, like many people, when I when I first started out in, in the industry, when I left the army, I kind of started, as I mentioned earlier, as a mobile electrician, and then I had my own garage and things like that. I was convinced that all that really mattered was the, the level of my technical and diagnostic skills and things like that and of course they they're vitally important you know if you can't do the job then then things don't work but you know it's a terrible cliche but I I wish I'd known then what I know now um because you know to know how to handle customers to know how to manage people better to know how to manage a business to know when to say no (laughs) and and a few different things like that you know that I really do wish I'd known more at the time, but I learned throughout the the course of running various businesses and things, and even to the extent now that I've recently written a series of of short articles. they have published via uh, Auto Mechanica, which hopefully most people will have will have heard of, um, and they're along the lines of you know, here's what I wish I had known then about how to make a business plan, how to set my hourly rate. You know, I. I set my hourly rate in the early days by looking around and seeing what other people were charging. Uh, And I still hear people doing that now. And I was wrong. I was wrong. You know, you you should look at what are your ongoing costs and and all of this sort of thing. What level of quality do you want? And and all sorts of things like that. And the amount of work I did that was never going to pay any money was crazy. So that's just an example of like an individual in there. But in larger organisations, I think you know good management and leadership is absolutely essential it, you know it, it's the, the technical skills you know it's probably where people like you and I come from Andy isn't it it's you know we we technical people and we like getting our hands on stuff and measuring stuff and mending it and breaking it and mending it again and things like that I still enjoy doing that now you know um but it all has to be done within a managed kind of structure and things like that and you know to kind of put a positive spin on this i mean i do see lots of small businesses these days improving immeasurably in these respects because they've like listening to old gigs like us you know that have perhaps been around the block a little bit and and are learning from them and things like that and some of the new bigger companies the way that they manage and the way that they look after their technicians and and different things like that you know things are improving um but you know back to the answer to your question, it's essential good manage manager uh, management and leadership is is essential in our industry
0: and there's and there's many young and aspiring leaders coming coming up through the industry uh they want to grow and develop develop their leadership skills um in other you know can you give them any advice or in other words, what would the current tom what advice would the current tom give to the twenty two year old tom um
1: <laughs> Well, my, my knees didn't hurt as much at that time. I mean, that's that's kind of one of the things. And I'd, I'd perhaps tell him to be a bit more careful while he was playing football and things like that for the future. But, but <laughs> that, that aside, I mean, it's a pretty tough question, you know, really. <clears throat> <clears throat> Sorry. That aside, it, it's a pretty tough question, really, because if I went back and changed anything much about what my career was then I wouldn't be kind of the same person today and I wouldn't have the same um, experience and things like that as I've been you know learn as I've been going along but I suppose in general advice to to people who are who are coming up is that as we touched on earlier you know learning about how to manage your business and be a leader in the industry is as important as learning The technical skills you might be a small business person where you're doing both roles or you might be wanting to move into management you know there's some good management jobs in in our industry so as i say it's really tough but in general my my advice i suppose never stop learning and that includes technical and leadership and management because they're all things that you can learn um It's never too late to learn and change. I mean, as I shared earlier on, my career's kind of zigzagged through several iterations, but always with the motor trade in the center of it somehow, so that's important and I suppose the other thing I always want to say is never let people put you off our industry There's lots of people out there want to kind of run down the automotive trade, and we all know there's some dodgy stuff goes on here and there. But by and large, it's a really good trade to be in, you know, and it's really interesting. And, you know, to the young person out there, don't stop learning. Keep changing when you need to and, and moving onwards and upwards. And you can earn quite well out of our industry as well. I'm not a rich man, you know, but I'm OK. I'm comfortable. I've got a nice car in the drive and, and all of these sort of things. And it's all perfectly possible.
0: So learning, 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 learning but what can we say? Brilliant. Now, obviously looking looking ahead, we're 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 into that sort of revolution, that change from internal combustion engine to zero emission future. How do you see that affecting the industry?
1: You know, I think one thing really, let's start on a real positive here, Andy, is that as an industry, if there's one thing we've been good at over the years, it's change. And we, you know, we've always been able to adapt to new things coming out and, and so on. And, and of course, some people get to a certain point where they think, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to to get off, you know, and I can remember different times when, I don't know, when catalytic converters first came out and lambda sensors and things like that. And people say, no, I'm out of this. I don't want to do this anymore. Sorry. <coughs> Edit. And, you know, different technologies that have come out over the years have been um, really challenging. And it's fair to say, I think the change that we're experiencing at the moment as we move from internal combustion engines to electric and perhaps hydrogen technologies and and different things like that as we go. I think that's the biggest change that we've ever seen. Um, My view, how, how do I cope with that? I get on board and I embrace it. And I enjoy it. And, yeah. you know, and let's do it. And, and you know, oh, cars are going to become more complicated. Nobody will be able to fix them at home. Good. I'm quite happy about that, you know, because the less work people can do on their vehicles at home, then they have to bring it to us because we're the experts. And, and that's absolutely essential, really.
0: So, and and um, should, yeah. should, should technicians be licensed? Should, should technicians be be licensed, trained, qualified? Or do we carry on like we are now?
1: Um, definitely they should be qualified, they should always be qualified and always try to keep up to date with continuing professional development and things like that. Uh, Lots of people say to me, oh Tom, everything in the motor trade would be okay if only everybody was licensed. Now, that's very easy to say, but almost impossible to achieve, because first of all, it's almost impossible to define what we mean by licensed. So, what, what qualification do you hold to be licensed? Do you have to license yourself as an electrician, as a mechanic, as a sprayer, as um, a, a salvage worker, as a uh, body panel repair, you know, tyre fitter, exhaust fitter? Do all these different aspects of the trade have to be licensed in slightly different ways? And if they do, who decides what? who decides how you keep your license up to date, and so on. People often say we should be licensed like the gas industry is here in the UK. But that's a license in one specific, relatively easy to package kind of area that they can keep up with. Our trade is too big and too wide to do it. But I I go a step further as well, because... I always find that any government, the current one and, and many of others, don't have any appetite for the licensing within our trade. And that's because I think it, it's so, so diverse. There is an answer, in my humble opinion, and that is that we need to do it ourselves. We need to set high standards and we need to exceed them. We need to charge accordingly. We, we shouldn't do cheap jobs, cheap work. Um, You know, set a high standard and do it and and live up to it. And licensing is is an interesting thing because you can think about it from two angles. Forgive me for quoting something Latin here. I don't even really understand them myself, but I'll have a go at it. But there's two forms of licensing and one is known as de jure or de jure. And that means kind of by the jury, by jurisdiction or by law, you know, thou shalt do this. And the other form of licensing is de facto. So it's by the fact of how just things have have turned out. And for example, I mean, to give the IMI a good plug once again, I'm a a big fan of the IMI TechSafe scheme, which is a scheme that allows people to uh, be registered as IMI TechSafe when they've completed electric vehicle qualifications, for example, or ADAS qualifications and things like that. But then in order to maintain that license, and it is a license, then regular specified CPD has to be done and assessed over a period of time. And I'm pleased to say that that's growing and it's becoming stronger and people are realising the benefit of it. They're, they're advertising it in their garage, you know, or their workshop and saying, you know, the staff here are tech safe, registered and, and things like that. And practising what I preach, um, if you were to search me on the imi website you will find that i'm uh, tech safe licensed on there That it's something that that we've all done so i do think it's got to come from within we're, we're the only people who understand it we've got to set our standards high and exceed them and that's how it will work i think
0: and and that's just, that's the same whatever part of the automotive industry you're in whether you're in mechanical repair collision repair or all the Um, dismantling and recycling
1: absolutely couldn't agree i mean i gave the uh, the example there of like electric vehicles because i'm heavily involved in that at the moment but um you know these sort of uh, licensing within the industry aspects i think should spread across all parts of the industry so whether as you say we're working in salvage or with with, uh, um, body repair or paint all of these sort of things i mean you know, the, the technology is becoming horrendously complicated, such that, you know, when the car goes into the body shop, for example, and the ADAS system is not calibrated correctly, there's a real risk when drivers take these things back out. There's a huge risk to people in the dismantling industry, and you'll know better than any of us, you know, particularly <laughs> as we move into high voltage and things like that. Um, you know, but people who are fully trained um, and who are uh, licensed and voluntarily licensed and keep up to date, um, I'm never gonna kill myself on a high voltage electric vehicle because I know what to touch, what not to touch and what to do. And that's only because we've done training and learning to do that, you know. So so that's the secret to me is, is that somehow or another, we have to do it ourselves.
0: Now, looking at the recycling industry, there's a move, particularly in the UK, it's, this has been happening around the world a lot, but particularly in the UK towards um, recycle parts being used in re- vehicle repair, collision repair, mechanical repair. Have you got any thoughts on that?
1: I think it's an absolutely brilliant idea and I hope we can find a way to make it work. I don't know enough about your particular industry, Andy, to know how exactly we could develop it further, but, I mean, from the you know green credentials point of view, it's a blindingly obvious thing to do. And I mean, uh, you know, as far as like could government help in this respect? Well, maybe they could. You know, maybe they could tighten the rules for manufacturers so that it makes it even easier for the parts to be recycled and reused at the end of it. I think, as an industry ourselves, we need to find ways of of dealing with this. I mean. As far as um, crash repairs are concerned, for example, the insurance companies need to be on board with with the process. I mean, a uh, you know a, a secondhand sort of body panel or, or something like that, as long as it's of the right quality, is potentially better than some of the pattern things that you could buy to fit, for example. But you know, we still have this issue of like litigation and and so on to 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 get over. So. Um, You know, where do we go as far as the future is concerned? I mean, I think um, the salvage industry is going to become much, much more valuable. Um, The the value in things um, on electric vehicles, batteries, motors, generators, motor generators, and the control systems, inverters, and things like that. They like, you know, form about a third of the vehicle huge, you know, complicated and hugely, hugely expensive components and things like that. So I think there's there's money to be made in all aspects of the trade out of these things. Um, Now, I'm struggling a bit to know exactly what the answer is um, as to how we do this. And as I say, I I wish the legislation, if anything, could force manufacturers to make it easier for us to be able to uh, recycle these components, Mm -hmm. because it's. It's an absolute no-brainer, isn't it? Uh, you know, of making better use of these things. I mean, you know, we we we've all had horror stories in the past. Uh, you know, I you're back in when I had as I used to say a proper job rather than what I do now. You know, and I, I'd, I'd fit like a second-hand engine from the local breaker's yard, I'd fit a second-hand engine for somebody, and it seemed perfectly okay. But you know, then ten months later, the customer comes back and says that this engine you fitted is no good and It's my fault, and and we need systems to get round that. And I, you know, you know, it might be well, okay, but you've had 10 months out of it for like a, a tenth of the price it would have been if you'd had a new one fitted. So these things do have a have a balance, don't they? So, you know, it it a lot of it comes back to professionalism again, I think. You know, we, we I'm sure you must talk about this all the time in your industry, Andy, but the we don't want to use the words like scrapyards and things that I I kind of grew up with, and it annoys me that it's still there. But you know, it stuck in the psyche a little bit as we were growing up. But even back as a kid, I can remember local salvage yards, and one or two of them had a different view on the industry. the The, the traditional method was we used to like wander around all these like teetering towers of cars, you know, and risk our own life to sort of take a part off somewhere or other and others had stripped the whole car had it all on shelves in a nice warehouse and you'd go to what effectively was a parts counter and say have you got xyz to fit an abc vehicle and the guy would go and get one off the shelf and and hand it over i mean and that that's sort of a a mindset thing again Hmm. isn't it and that illustrates i think what i've been saying a few times you know that we've got to DIY, we've got to do it
0: ourselves and lift the image of of our industry in some way. Brilliant, brilliant. That's amazing, amazing. And one final question, and we ask all our guests on the podcast, what was your first car? And do you have any special memories of that car?
1: Um, It was a Hillman Avenger. (laughs) It was sort of a purpley turquoise colour. And its registration number, I can remember to this day, it was M-U-M, so it said Mum, 463P. And although, you know, looking back, it's not the coolest car in in the world at that time, and I'm not gonna give you the date of when this was, but it was going back a little bit. But I think it had a, a dynamo on it as opposed to an alternator. That probably helps to date it a little bit, doesn't it? I mean, and I absolutely loved it. It was my first car. It seemed to require constant attention. So I'd have to like fiddle with it, you know, every day to do something. And, and on a journey, it would require several tweaks along the way almost to keep it going, you know, and bits of sticky tape and duct tape and all sorts of these things like this to keep it going. And so I absolutely loved it. And interestingly, I sold it to raise money so that I could buy a second-hand van from the post office. When I first started my mobile business, I swapped it. So that that's the memory, if you like. <laughs> swapped it for a van to put all my tools in, so I could start my first mobile Fantastic. business. That, Fantastic! How much
0: the auto, automotive trade is inside me, I think. Amazing! Amazing! Love it! Love it! And just finally, you, you've mentioned you, your books. Where where can people get those books from?
1: Well, thanks, Andy. Yeah, that's that's nice of you to ask. In in the UK. Um, I've got my own website, which is just my name, so Tom Denton, T-O-M-D-E-N-T-O-N dot org, and then I can um, sign the books before I send them out, so people get them sent out. Um, In the UK, that is only, I'm afraid, it's 10% off the price and free delivery, so that's not bad at all. Um, Anywhere else in the world, the books are available directly from my publisher, which is um, Routledge, so, you know, Google Routledge, R-R-U-T-L-E-D-G-E, Routledge, and Tom Denton, and it will bring up a a list of all my books on there, and they will ship all over the world, and in many cases, I mean, Australia, for example, they have their own branch, if you like, and print and distribute the books from there, so so they're available just about everywhere, but in the UK, if you want a signed copy, and um, so it'll be worth more when I'm dead, then it's probably worth um, picking one up from my website. <laughs> okay, this thing, and, it's not going to be much longer, so get yeah. in there quick.
0: That's <laughs> it, and I'll make certain that the the links for those two sites are in the show notes as well, so everybody thank can you. can link to those as well. Thank you, Tom. It's been brilliant. Thank you so much for your time. I've really enjoyed talking with you today, and uh, thank you.
1: Absolute pleasure, Andy. Thanks for inviting me. Bye, everybody.
0: A big thank you to Tom for his time and his knowledge. You will find more details about Tom and his textbooks in the notes for this episode. Please subscribe and take the time to like and share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. And please give us a rating and we'll see you on the next show. Thank you.